In this week's episode of Splainin', Evan explains the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. The retelling of this horrific event may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on to the episode! You got some Splainin'! You got some Splainin' to do! You got some! You got some! Welcome to Splainin'! The podcast where two guys explain things to each other. That they should know. But don't. I am Jeff Sims. And I'm Evan Smith. Welcome, Evan, to episode 51, baby! 51, baby! 18, if we're talking about season 2. Season 2, 18. In the... um, time of like reflection last week yes and like listening to, like, like we went back and listened to a bunch of different easter eggs to see if we want to throw like a, a easter egg recap in an and, easter egg hunt yeah as one would say i listened to a couple like beginnings of episodes and stuff and one thing i noticed is that our our intro for the first few episodes i don't know if you've listened recently is very it's not low energy but it's very like yeah. we try and replicate the same tone each time it's very like Welcome to Splainin', the podcast where two guys... Like, it feels like a very, like, Radiotopia-style, like, Air yeah. Canada podcast. Ooh, Air and, Canada. And now it's just like, woo, let's have, <laughs> like, let's have a good time, which yeah. I like. Yeah. And, like, it's, it changes with the wind. And there's our, structure where there needs to be structure, but there's fluidity exactly. where it calls for it. Whereas before, it felt like we were like, this is our concrete... Welcome to Splainin'. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Well, and also... A- I, I listened to... I didn't mean to cut you off there. I'm no, so no, sorry. please. We're so out of sync. I don't know. Should we even be recording right now? Should we stop? Should we start over? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also, I noticed that there's a lot of episodes that don't have an Easter egg. No. Do we actually like openly talk about what the Easter egg is and how it works and why we do it? I don't think so. It kind of defeats the purpose of having it by talking about it. Perhaps it does, yes. But now that you've said it, we kind of have to. <laughs> okay. So we're not sure if we did. So for those of you who have noticed or have not, uh, at the end of every episode, uh, some of them, obviously, not all of them, not, <laughs> not every episode, all. some of the episodes, we go ahead and we'll add clips that didn't quite make the episode. They might have been yes. funny moments. It could have been something... Normally, normal. something inappropriate we think shouldn't be in there that we just put at the end. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, you won't listen that you long. You won't listen anyway. to it. It's kind of like the ending of the Marvel movies. Yeah. Um... So it's one of those things where, uh, and I think I heard or learned the term from Tim Matson, who, right. when he directs a lot of musicals, he said that's the perfect Easter egg moment, right. where if the audience notices what's happening, yeah. it's a little added extra thing, and it's perfect. They learn a little bit more, but if right. they don't see it or if they don't get it, doesn't matter. It doesn't. It do, you, they yeah. don't miss out on the overall no. experience. Yeah. Similar to hunting for Easter eggs. If you yes. miss one, you don't miss. You don't miss it. Until Obviously. summer happens and like it's melted it's on your melted heater, and yeah. The dogs are licking it, and yeah. then the dogs sick, and then it's, it's an ordeal. Then <laughs> it's an ordeal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, they're fun little things. But we, uh, if nothing, you know, some episodes have more cuts than others, and sometimes the cuts that get cut are really boring and not funny. Yes. So they don't go as an Easter egg. And sometimes there's zero cuts. Sometimes the content is just so good that it just needs to be the entire thing. And then we just put in, yeah, daddy, yeah, daddy. <laughs> So good. Yeah, that's my favorite. And that one to me sounds like I don't think we talked about this before, but that one to me sounds like at the end of a TV show when it does like the like production company and like all the produ- production. Yeah, companies. Or like if you're watching like well, I don't know, like Brooklyn Nine Nine. Is Brooklyn Nine Nine does bad Fremulon. robots? Oh, Fremulon, right? And not some a doctor. Do, not a doctor. And something they do bad robot. Yeah, and like go to bed. Yeah, yeah, 
It reminds me of that. So yeah, good. Daddy. Yeah, that's gonna be our uh, production company name. Yeah, Daddy. Ew. Mm. Gross. Ew. Gross. Take it back. Y e u h d a d d d a y. Yeah, Daddy. When people start spelling things, my brain turns off. I know. It really does. And I think I, it's just when other people talk to you, your brain turns <laughs> off. If I'm not actively the one speaking, yeah. don't care. Slytherin. Slytherin. Um, yeah. So we are coming out of our um, uh, 50th episode. I just had a... <laughs> Comas? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I struggle with that one. Uh, we just came out of our 50th episode anniversary, our one-year anniversary, and we had a week-long celebration. Yep. And I think it went, I'm super happy with it. It legitimately was a week. Yeah. I didn't think that it would be. No. I didn't think that I thought we would ask for things, and people would be like, yeah, we'll get to that next week when it doesn't matter. People showed up. They stepped up yeah. is what they did. Yeah. So, like, huge shout-out to everybody who posted it on social media, tagged us and stuff, shared it. Like, that is so much love. It was really great. Yeah. Thank was, you so much. Our hearts were warmed. Yeah. Warmed, I say. We didn't really enjoy it because we were drunk the entire week. <laughs> so, we didn't realize it till the Sunday <laughs> when we were hungover going through all the birthday messages. Yeah. But, no, it was fantastic. And we really we, – we had a lot of fun. And we, we went, were we certainly spent some time together. That's what <laughs> God. <laughs> the worst, the worst, not the worst. The worst and best thing was during the if you saw the pictures and video of the birthday party that we had. Yeah. Poor Harrison. Every time we would do something, he'd be like, Can we eat cake now? And we're like, no, no, three more pictures, bud. Three more pictures. Can you can, Harrison, can you smile? Harrison, put your hat back on. Harrison, put your Oliver's hat on. Uh, Harrison, put your hat back on. Can you smile? Can we have cake now? Just two more pictures, bud. Just two more yeah. pictures. And we get them done. And we're like, oh, just one more thing. Yeah, it was great. And then when he finally was like, can we eat it now? We're like, yeah. He's like, great. Go get the fucking forks. <laughs> Seriously. Ah, fuck it. I'll use my hands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't need you guys no. like you need me. <laughs> <laughs> this relationship is a one-way street, yeah, boys. This is not symbiotic. Yeah. I understand the exploitation. I just demand my cake at a prompt <laughs> time. <laughs> Poor guy. God love him. Honestly, oh. God love him. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, in every, and I mean every, um, discussion of what the content of the episode was. Yes. We said... Evan is explaining daylight savings time in all of them. All of them. All of them. And it wasn't until I listened to the episode, I guess it was Saturday, because I hadn't listened previously. I mean, I did eventually, like weeks before. Yeah. But I hadn't listened to the content in a while. I just flicked it on just to hear it in context. Yep. And um, I was like, wait, I do explain daylight savings time, but only as a tangent because it helps with leap years. Yes. Which you did put in a post yesterday because I told you about the mistakes. But, yes, 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 yes. Um, but yeah. It's so funny because that was like one of the very first things on our list of like, this is what we need explained. Yeah. We're, we're leap years, cameras, cousins. Yeah. I, I just Cousins remember- was my number one. When we made our lists, when we yeah. were talking about doing the podcast, yeah. I was like, I don't get cousins. Yeah. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, because I think I'm wrong. Around the time when we were planning it was around the time of a leap year. Like 2020 February. was a leap year, yeah? Yeah, yeah, Like February, is it February? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. February 29th, you yeah. learned a lot. All you had to do was remember one day, bud. <laughs> um, 
So I think when we were planning, because that would have aligned when we That's, were planning. Yeah. So that probably was the. Um, and like one of my like first cousins probably had a baby around that time. I was like, "What are the A to B? <laughs> Someone tell me. What do I write on the card from Walmart? <laughs> Glad to have you in the world, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> dot dot dot. <laughs> oh, that was great. Oh my. But yeah, we had lots of fun. We had lots of fun, and we hope you did too. Because yeah. um, you know, un- until next year. Well, yeah, we're gonna have to have another one of these in a year's time. April 30th. I also remembered, because it came up on my post, uh, my Facebook, um, it's the day that I shaved my head last year. It was. Remember? I remember I got mildly upset because I was like, buddy, you're stealing our thunder. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, buddy. I was just driving home. Because I think in the video of me shaving my head, I actually did say our podcast launched that day. I think you did too. Quite a few people watched me shave my head. I would have watched me shave my head. That's an entertaining thing to watch. I had a lot of hair. Yeah. I guess so. I mean, she was long. I hadn't had a haircut since the pandemic began. No, wait. It was only a month before. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Not doesn't matter. No. No. But anyways, here we are. Back at it. Like normal times. Yeah. So let's, let's do I, some normal topics. Which I like. Because like whenever I would listen to like the West Wing Weekly, they would have guests all the time. Like actors yeah. from the show, people who are like actually part of the real government, yada, yada, yada. And like I'm boring. Wh- well, Real it was it government. wasn't. It was great. But once they'd get to an episode that was just like if they had two or three episodes in a row that had a guest, once they got back to one that was just the two of them, I'm like, I can relax in this one. Like I feel like we're home. You know? Yeah. And that's how I feel this week. Because yeah. like we had Leah's episode, which was delightful. Last week felt to most people, I guess, like a regular episode, but for us, like we didn't actually record the content. No. Um, well we we, we did, did seventeen but, times a yeah. year ago. Yeah. But um, on yeah. baked potatoes, <laughs> you were on a baked potato. I was on one. I'm on now. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. It's it feels nice. It feels like we're home again. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, shall we dive in, my friend? Please. Yes. Uh, so this week is kind of like a uh, pseudo send-in. It was an original send-in that we kind of tweaked a little bit. Uh, but it is nature versus nurture, mm. which is like. You know, a little bit of an interesting, uh, not necessarily a debate, but it's, it's kind almost of like a good, philosophical. Almost, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like social psychology. Yeah, yeah. So there's lots of uh, cool facts and stuff. So I'm gonna give you a little brief history on it. First off, do you know much about nature versus nurture? I don't know. I mean, I understand the concept. Yes. Yeah. Like oh. when kids grow up and they're shit, we're like, were their parents just bad at raising them, or yeah. were they shit from the time they were or born? Or do they have shit genetics? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah sure. That uh, could be. That's yeah. You pass. <laughs> Great. You pass. Um, so the nature versus nurture debate involves whether human behavior is determined by the environment, either prenatal or during a person's life, or by a person's genes. Right. The study of this is known as epigenealogy or oh. epigenetics. Okay. Which stands for the next level above genetics, like epi, more, higher. Okay. Like epicure. Yes, or <laughs> epinephrine. <laughs> nice. Uh, the complementary combination of the two concepts is an ancient Greece concept. Nature is what people think of as a pre-wiring and is influenced by genetic inheritance and other biological factors. Nurture is generally taken as the influence of external factors after conception. 
Exactly. Like the weather if you're in Newfoundland. Like you just brought yes. it all the time. Exactly. Okay. That is physically changing who you are. <laughs> yeah. When it snows, I become angrier. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Uh, the product of exposure, experience, and learning upon an individual. So the phrase in its modern sense was popularized by the Victorian polymath Francis Galton, the modern founder of eugenics and behavioral genetics, when he was discussing the influence of heredity and environment on social advancement. Okay. The view that humans acquire all or almost all their behavioral traits from nurture was termed tabula rasa. Do you know what that stands for? Tabula rasa. Uh... I don't know what it stands for, but I know that I've heard it through Tiffany probably. Uh, Blank tablet or blank slate. Ah. Uh, It was coined by John Locke in 1690. Okay. Uh, A blank slate view. Have you ever watched Lost? Sorry to interrupt Uh, you. I couldn't get into it. Oh, just get into it. Okay. I mean, it's it's like elements of it are like, guys, come on. Because it happened, like seasons of it happened during the big writer strike in like whatever year that was, 2006 or 2007. Sure. Um, but uh, it's a, like you, I think you would love it. And the character who is John Locke is yes. awesome. Yeah, yeah. They're all named after famous philosophers, aren't they? I don't think so. Some of them are. Are they? I thought it was just that guy. I thought it was a coincidence. No. Because there's nothing to do with philosophy, Rudy, but in the show. Oh. <laughs> I guess I'll go watch it. I'm not sure. You should watch it. Maybe I'll watch it get to the season finale and then cry. It's one. <laughs> it's one of those. Um, it's one of those shows where you very quickly start to love all of the characters who are not the main guy. Like okay. the main guy, Jack, is like you're like Jack. Come, it's a little bit like Frodo in. Um, um, the Lord of the Rings. No, 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 no. I'm thinking of which one. In, the Return, in, Return of the, Return the King. Of the King. <laughs> You're just like, come on, Frodo. Yeah. It's that but you for love, like five seasons. But you love Samwise Gamgee because of that. Exactly. Yeah. It makes you, yeah, exactly. I can't but, carry his ring, but I'll carry you, Mr. Frodo. Yeah. Cry then. Seriously. I'll name a kid Samwise. Anyways, a blank slate view in human development psychology, uh, which assumes that human behavioral traits develop almost exclusively from environmental influences. So this was a wildly held opinion, widely, sorry, held opinion during much of the 20th century. Okay. Or sorry, during much up until the 20th century. Oh, okay. The debate between the blank slate, which is all environmental, and the view admitting both environmental and uh, heritable traits has often been cast in terms of nature versus nurture. Right. These two conflicting approaches to human development were at the core of an ideological dispute over research agendas throughout the second half of the 20th century. The strong... Dichotomy of nature versus nurture has thus been claimed to have limited relevance in some fields of research because there's no strong left or right. It's, right. There's a little bit of both. There's literally no answer to the problem. Yeah. yeah. So close feedback loops have been found in which nature and nurture influence one another constantly as seen in del- self-domestication. Uh, in ecology and behavioral genetics, researchers think nurture has an essential influence on nature similarly in other fields. The driving line between an inherited and an equated uh, sorry, acquired trait becomes unclear, as in epigenetics or fetal development. In the early 20th century, there was an increased interest in the role of the environment. Franz Boas, 
uh, who wrote The Mind of Primitive Man around 1911, established a program that would dominate American anthropology for the next 15 years. Okay. In this study, he established... <laughs> I thought you were saying a larger number. It would dominate American was, was anthropology. anthropology for the next 15 years. Not a very long time when we're talking, you know, centuries. Sure. Uh, in this study, he established that in any given population, biology, language, material, and symbolic culture, that each is an equally important dimension of human nature. Right. But that none of these dimensions is reducible to another. Okay. John B. Watson, in the mid-1920s and 30s, uh, established <laughs> the school of purist behaviorism. Uh, a school? Well, the school, not physically. School, a school of, of thought. thought. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that would become dominant over the following decades. Okay. Uh, Watson is often said to have been convinced of the complete dominance of cultural influence over anything that heredity might contribute. You're using so many large words in one sentence. It's really hurting my brain. I, I don't think they're particularly large, buddy. They're mostly like two-syllable words. Or three, at most. Yeah, but when there's a lot in a row. Dominance, <laughs> culture, influence, <laughs> over I'm really like, anything. I'm trying to make my eyes bigger. To like, if I make my eyes larger, will I understand better? Will <laughs> I retain it? Uh, so he has a quote. Uh, Give me a dozen healthy infants, well-formed, and my own specified world to bring them up in, and I'll guarantee to take any one at random and train them to become any type of specialist I might select. Doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chef, whatever. Really? And even a beggar man or thief, regardless of their talents, um, tendencies, abilities, vocations, and race, uh, I am going beyond my facts, and I admit it. But so have the advocates of the contrary, and they have been doing it for many thousands of years. So that was a quote that he said. Now, a lot of it was taken out of context. People right. would be like, he then obviously believes that everything is environmental, right. that none of it is hereditary. Right. Um, but he is actually a very... But what he actually said was, regardless of their talents. So he was presuming that they did have talents at birth. Yes, or that they right. didn't. Right. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if they have anything at all, that you give me them in yes. a perfect circumstance and I can yeah. turn them into whatever. Right. right. Um, so during the 1940s uh, to around the 60s, Ashley Montague uh, was noted as being a big supporter of the purest form of behaviorism, which allowed no contribution from heredity, heredity whatsoever. Okay. Which means it's pure environment. Okay. Man is man because he has no instincts. Because everything he is and has become, he has learned and acquired from his culture. With the exception of the instinctoid reactions in infants to sudden withdrawals of support and to sudden loud noises, the human being is entirely instinctless. I couldn't agree less. Yeah. Okay. I'm, well, I mean... I know that we're not, yeah, we're not there yet. I'm not, Ashley. <laughs> Montague, I'm a capitalist. <laughs> and I disagree. I disagree. Uh, studies conducted on identical twins established that there was, in many cases, a significant heritable component. Mm -hmm. These results did not, in any way, point to overwhelming contribution of heritable factors. Can I tell you a fun story about twins? Yeah. It's very short. Sure. You really don't want me to interrupt you today. I can feel it. I can feel your energy being like, just let me keep talking, you son of a bitch. No, I'll <laughs> open my eyes real wide for you. <laughs> um, so, my story about twins. At Oliver's Kinder Music class, I might have told you this already, but not on the podcast. I don't think so. 
there's a set of twins. Not identical, but fraternal. And one looks exactly like the father, and one looks exactly like the mother. And they both, both the father and the mother always go, and each takes one kid. Because mm-hmm. you sort of need, like, one parent per kid. But every week, they each take the same kid. Oh. And the father takes the one who looks like him. And the mother takes one of like her, and that's the one that they stay with the whole class. And it's so weird. And I brought it up to numerous people this week, and today at Kinder Music, they switched. They didn't. Yes, they did. And I was like, did I make this happen? You did. Anyway, just the, just the fact that one looks identical to each parent is weird, and the fact that they stuck with the one who looks like them, I find odd. But anyway, for some reason... Also, how old are they? How similar can they look to that parent? The babies? Yeah. The babies look nothing alike. The eyes of one child looks exactly like the father, and he's like almost balding like the father. The other one has a head of hair and looks like the mother. Like the twins look like different children. They, That's don't, they don't look like siblings. That's hilarious. But they look like each parent. Do identical twins look identical from beginning to end? Like as in tip of their head to their toe? What do you mean? No, I mean... <laughs> from beginning to end. Of life. Like even oh, as, I don't as, know. as like babies, infants, or like is, does there come a point where you're like, oh, you guys are the same? I bet it's nature versus nurture in that. I bet they do. I, they're identical, but as oh, their yes. life goes on, like one could oh, get yes. fat. They'll change. Yes, that'll you know change. I mean? But what I mean is like, like they're obviously fraternal twins. Like if they, if they don't look identical, these are fraternal for sure. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, could like they I, actually be identical, but just one is growing hair faster? But then no, their faces. Look and you know how totally like babies' different. eyes change color. Like they all start off blue and then they change. Like yes. could it be something like that where you're like he's no. got his father's eyes. No, no, no. But he grew into his mother's nose. Like no, <laughs> no they look entirely different. Yeah, one's a girl and one's a boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're both boys, but uh, they look entirely different. Yeah. Uh, so this also leads into the next piece that Donald Hebb kind of posed, uh, which is what blah, 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 blah. which is it nature or nurture that contributes more to personality? By asking in response, which contributes more to the area of a rectangle? Its length or its width? Right. It which doesn't is, matter. Exactly. Okay. That's kind of the moral of that. Right. Um, uh, so heritability studies become much easier to perform and hence much more numerous with the advances of genetic studies. During the 1990s, by the, um, there was an overwhelming amount of evidence that had been put together that amounts to a disagreement of the extreme forms of blank slate theory, which was originally advocated by Montague. Which is because, obviously, we can now prove things are hereditary. It kind of goes against that. Yeah. It's a blanket blanket slate, right? clearly. And the trick, too, is I would imagine... Excuse me. I'm so burpy tonight. Mm. It's it's much easier to prove the hereditary side than the nurture. Yes. Because nurture is all environmental and so different. So many moving parts. Where hereditary is like, no, it's science. We can prove that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So one way to determine the contribution of genes and environment to a trait is to study twins. In one kind of study, identical twins reared apart are compared to randomly selected pairs of people. Right? Identical twins what? What was the next word you said? Are they're paired. Or sorry, they're reared apart. What does that mean? Reared. Uh, grew up. Raised. Oh, 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 oh. What a new Reared. Word. Reared. Yeah. That sounds like a new thing. I didn't need to say it with more like, reared. Reared. Yeah. They're reared apart. Um, and they're compared to randomly selected 
pairs of people. Okay. The twins share identical genes, but different family environments. Right. Twins reared apart <laughs> are not assigned at random to foster or adoptive parents. In another kind of twin study, identical twins reared together who share family environment and genes are compared to fraternal twins reared together who also share family environment but only share half their genes. Right. Another condition that permits the disassociation of genes and environment is adoption. Right. In one kind of adoption study, biological siblings reared together who share the same family environment and half their genes are compared to adoptive siblings who share their family environment but none of their genes. Right. Good studies. I like this. Oh, yeah. In many cases, it has been found that genes make a substantial contribution, including psychological traits such as intelligence and personality. Right. Yet, uh, heritability may differ in other circumstances. For instance, environmental deprivation. So an example of low, medium, and high heritability traits uh, include the ones I just went over a couple minutes ago. Uh, so twin and adoption studies have their method, blah, blah, methodological limits. Methodological limits. It's a mouthful. Sounds like a Pokemon. Methodological. Methodological. Go! <laughs> this scientific method. <gasps> Methodological is, is involving. <laughs> I don't know what he's going to involve into. Um, so example. I can't add another syllable to the word. So. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. Uh, both are limited to the range of environments and genes which they sample. Almost all of these studies are conducted in Western countries and therefore cannot necessarily be extrapolated globally to include non-Western populations. So there's a lot of restrictions to a lot of these studies. Okay. It also is not as simple as saying there are only two major contributing factors, nature or nurture. Right. There's so many moving parts. Yeah. Um, there's also gene environment interaction, which is muddying the waters a little bit more. Wait, the environment that the genes are in? I don't understand. Or, no, the um, things in the environment that actually... Um, Change the genealogy. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like radioactive chemicals? Like sure. <laughs> a little bit less drastic, but okay. yeah, I guess so. Right. Um, they are another component of the nature-nurture debate. A classic example of gene-environment interaction is the ability of a diet low of amino acid phenylalanine to partially suppress the genetic disease phenylketonuria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So because in your diet, if you have low something else, the genetic predisposition for this disorder, like, do you know what I mean? Where right. the genes are affecting one thing, but the nature is kind of contributing to it. Okay. Um, yet another complication to the nature-nurture debate is the existence of gene-environment correlations. These correlations indicate that individuals with certain genotypes are more likely to find themselves in certain environments. Okay. Thus, it appears that genes can shape the selection or creation of environments. Even using experiments like those described above, it can be very difficult to determine convincingly the relative contribution of genes in environment. Okay. So what that would be is um, someone who is prone to alcoholism. Right. Do you know what I mean? They will find themselves in situations more so of substance abuse. Right. And therefore, it is, what is it, nature or nurture? Well, we don't know. Is it environmental? No, because their genes kind of put them in there. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So extreme genetic or environmental conditions can predominate in rare circumstances. If a child is born mute due to a genetic mutation, it will not learn to speak any language regardless of the environment. Right. Similarly, someone who is particularly certain to eventually develop Huntington's disease, according to their genetic uh, type, may actually die in an unrelated accident and therefore never actually manifest the disease. Oh, right. So it's like there's hundreds of different things, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Stephen, <laughs> so silver lining, I guess. <laughs> Yikes! Indeed, Stephen Pinker likewise described several examples. A quote: "Okay, um, concrete behavioral traits that pat- uh, that sorry that patently depend on content provided by the home or culture, which language one speaks, which religion one practices, which political party one supports, are not heritable at all." Mm-hmm. but traits that reflect the underlying talents and temperaments. Right. How proficient with language a person is, right. how religious they are, how liberal or conservative they are, are partially heritable. So the environment will dictate what religion, what you know, yes. what you like, what you don't like, but the genetics will be like how much you like it. How right. much you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so that goes into it a little bit more. Another interesting part is uh, talking about personality traits. Okay. So personality is a frequently cited example of a heritable trait that has been studied in twins and adoptees using behavioral genetic studies. Uh, they had people rate their personalities on a thousand plus dimensions, which is shocking. They then narrowed them down to the big five factors of personality. Okay. Whether or not a person op- is open, so openness, yeah. conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Okay. So there are the five points. Uh, the close genetic relationship between positive personality traits and, for example, our happiness traits are in mirror images of um, comorbidity, sorry, comorbidity in uh, psychopathology. So these personality factors were consistent across cultures, and many studies have also tested the heritability of these traits as well. Identical twins, reared apart, are far more similar in personality than randomly selected pairs of people. Right. Likewise, identical twins are more similar than fraternal twins. Also, biological siblings are more similar in personality than adoptive siblings. Right. Each observation suggests... That personality is heritable to a certain extent. Right. Adoption studies also directly measure the strength of shared family effects. Adopted siblings share only family environment. Uh, Most adoption studies indicate that by adulthood, the personalities of adopted siblings are little or no more similar than random pairs of strangers. Interesting. Mm -hmm. This would mean that they shared family effects on personality are zero by adulthood. Interesting. Yeah. You would think that would not be the case. One would think. One would think, like, if you adopt a child who is a baby, like, part of your family dynamic will sort of rub off on the baby. Yep. And it will to an extent, absolutely. But, like, the core fundamentals, like, you could teach, like, you could be a full, like, well, let's put you guys, for example. You're a big. Just spit my beer all over my leg. 
poor thing. Uh, <laughs> you guys are a very musical family. Right. Right, you and Tiffany. Yeah. Right, if you adopted somebody, the kid would like music, but their aptitude for music yes, you know would be mean? relevant to their genealogy. They will always love music just yeah. from being in this household. Yes. But they're, they're apt, they're, it's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, so interesting. essentially, this is a long-winded way of explaining human nature, how we behave, and why we do it, and what, what we do. Right. Uh, there is not one factor that contributes to our uh, physiology, biology, or behavior. It's a combination of them all. Um, so let's talk about our favorite fictional characters for a second. Okay. Let's just dive in really quick. We have a couple minutes. Are we going Star Wars or are we going Harry Potter? Let's go Harry Potter for a second. Okay. Because <laughs> we can, one or the other. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Harry Potter... Let's take his instance for a second. Okay. Was ripped away from his family. Yeah. Went to go live with a, like a polarizing family. Yeah. And still turned out a separate way. Yeah. So what do we predominantly blame it on? Is it the nature or the nurture when it comes to Harry Potter? Blame what on? On who he is. On all the decisions he's ever made. Right? He's, yeah. I. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like he is a prime example of nature versus nurture. Like this whole charismatic, well, selfless Gryffindor, that kind of thing. Yeah. Comes from him. Like, is it like the famous quote that Dumbledore says is, uh, or him and McGonagall, she said, uh, every wizard will know his name. He'll be famous. Right. That's why it's good that he's living away from this. Right. Is that, you know, does that attribute to. But the him living with the Durs. Yes. Yeah, here's the trick. Him living with the Dursleys, Dursleys didn't make him like Dursley-ish. No, he sort of rebelled against that. But like, why, why re- did he rebel against it? Because yeah. n- nature was like, "This isn't you. Yeah. Your, your parents were not these people." Yeah, because right? his parents were more charismatic, absolutely. Yeah. But it made him more humble. It made him more appreciative of the smaller things. He lived in a you know a cupboard under the, the floor or the stairs. <laughs> under the floor. Under the floor. <laughs> Get in the floor. <laughs> All up to clapboards, Harry. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah, but then he also had like like he got special treatment though from some teachers. Oh, well, from Dumbledore, I suppose. Yeah, because but, he had to because he was destined to obviously save the world. Yes, but like you know, save so like, a high school. <laughs> no, save know, the world. I know. I know. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Great example. Uh, yeah, it's a great example. Great example. Same thing of Draco Malfoy. Yep. Right. His nature and nurture arguably, yep. or for him to be just a super hardcore Slytherin. Yep. But at the end of the day, decide, he couldn't kill Dumbledore. He couldn't yeah. do any of these bad things. He ended up saving Harry towards the end of the bo- uh, the, end yeah. of the Deathly Hallows. He had Hallows. some morals in, inside him. Right? Which was probably environmental from Hogwarts. Yeah. From living under Dumbledore. And, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, just very conflicting nature versus nurture, right? Even the conflicting his mother and father. Yeah, well, his mother, the actress who played his mother just died, hey? I heard. No, she, uh, yeah, Narcissa, yeah, yeah. Yeah, H- Helen McCrory, and she, uh, I just listened to her Desert Island Discs like two weeks ago, or no, probably a month and a half ago. Yeah. Anyway, they replayed it, but um, she was like, I, I've only ever seen her in that. That's all I've ever seen her in. Mm. Um, she was like a huge actress in Britain, and like when she like finished um, whatever drama school she went to, she played seven leads in a row at the National Theater. Like, she was a huge, like, listening. she has a crazy sore throat in her episode, so she's like, she doesn't sound at all like Narcissa Malfoy. It's insane. She literally sounds like she's probably like Professor Sprout. Well, you literally listen, you, you, you don't hear her talk a whole lot. The first time you hear her say a word is, um, uh, when, Draco. When, 
Or is it when she's with Bellatrix and Snape in their house? Yep. And she's, Sissy, he won't like it. Yeah. He doesn't want us to or something like that. She literally sounds like this on the episode. (laughs) It's so great. That's great. Yeah. Anyway, you should listen to it. It's fascinating listening to it. You know, it's just one actress I'd never know anything about her life. No. It's great. That's a nice tribute. Yeah. And we don't have to dive into this, but just as like a food for thought kind of thing. Yeah. Is the whole dichotomy of, um, you know, magic folk being raised by muggles. Yeah. Right? Their nature versus nurture. But is their nature to be genetically passed down to have magic, even though the parents don't have magic? And then they are raised in an environment of no magic, but then they're brought into a world of magic. And what makes them have the predispositions yeah. for things? Do you know what and I mean? Like, and you're like, okay, so Hermione's work ethic, for instance. Like, her parents are both dentists. So, like, clearly very intelligent people clearly worked hard to get where they are. Yeah. But also, there's an element of nature or nurture rather where she's got to prove herself in a wizard world where her family was never exactly where she does feel that underlying pressure that she doesn't belong yeah so there's a lot like it's it's a very interesting conflict between the two right we'll talk about it more on our Harry potter podcast yes which we are going to launch (laughs) next week Splaining is over. <sighs> and it's all... We're going to just keep calling it Splaining, but every episode will be Harry Potter related. I wonder how many people... That'll be season three. Season three will be only Harry Potter. <laughs> I have no problems with that. If anybody else supports this, let us know. <laughs> we'll happily do I it. I love it. Uh, that is all for Nature versus Nurture. Do you have any questions, concerns, or issues? Um, no, I don't think so. Cool. Essentially, like both of them are part of it, and there's no answer. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, so it didn't help you at all. No. It's like the philosophy class where you leave the class knowing less than what you did when you went in. Yeah. Uh, As always, folks, enjoy your break. What would you do to ensure your legacy? Check out the debut novel of local author Justin B. Hodder titled The Mists of Morn and follow his titular character, Emily Owens, as she sets out to make her legacy in the cutthroat industry of archaeology and treasure hunting. What will she risk to make her name? And who will oppose her to tarnish it? Pick up your copy today to find out. The Mists of Morn, on sale now at your local bookstore or direct by the author. And welcome back. You know what's great? Tell me. Arrowroot crackers. Arrowroot cookies. I literally just had seven. I'm eating one right now. Mr. Christie, you make good... Oh, it's an arrowroot biscuit. Oh, it is a biscuit. It's a biscuit. I always call them biscuits. It's a bicky. It's a bicky. Dip it in your tea. Um, I think I could eat nice crunch. I think I could eat like forty in a sitting. Why is it so tasty? It's really tasty. It's like the most bland thing that's also tasty. So Evan, I'm gonna hope that this is what you're explaining to me right now is <laughs> arrowroot biscuits. No, it's not. It's much more morbid than that. It is in fact the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Mr. Lindbergh, you make good <laughs> cookies. Um, so, do you know anything about Charles Lindbergh? No. Zero things. Zero. Okay, that's insane. Um, so Charles Augustus Lindbergh was an American aviator. You're with uh, me now? Do you remember? No. You just never know this? Oh, he famously made a nonstop flight from New York City to Paris in 1927. In fact, his final check-in before he crossed the Atlantic Ocean was St. John's, Newfoundland. Oh. He flew through the Narrows. That was his checkpoint. Um, there's a movie called um, uh, the 
Spirit of St. Louis, I think it's called. Hmm. And that's the name of the ship, or the name of the ship, boat. Jesus! The plane? The name of the plane. <laughs> he just was sitting in an airplane that was on a boat and just rode across the Atlantic on that. Whee! <laughs> uh, no, the name of the plane was the Spirit of St. Louis. And uh, yeah, his, there's a movie with, I can't remember what actor in it. We have a whole aviation show at Spirit Newfoundland. I can't believe you haven't seen it. What, the show? Or yeah. I know anything about St. Louis. No, the, the show. Yeah. Um, anyway, the Spirit of St. Louis was this name thing. There's a movie about it, and he flies through. They actually took footage in whatever year it came out. They like filmed in St. John's, and they filmed a a uh, airplane coming through down through the Narrows. Cool. The footage is great. Nice. Anyway, um, although he was not the first transatlantic flight, Ogg, and Brown had mm. done that eight years before when they took off from St. John's directly and landed in Ireland. But Lindbergh's flight was the first solo transatlantic flight. So it was like Alcock and Brown did it first. He did it next by himself, and then Amelia Earhart did it by herself. She was the first woman to do it. Sad times. Uh, Lindbergh received the Medal of Honor, the highest military decoration in the United States for his achievement. His flight helped significantly in global uh, interest in both commercial aviation and airmail. So do we know what he did differently than Alcock and Brown? He just did it by himself. So why did he deserve such a medal? They got shit, too. Okay. Yeah, but he just was the first one to do it by himself. Um, Lindbergh became instantly famous. It was been said that people reacted as if Lindbergh had walked on water, not flown over it. (laughs) (laughs) The New York Times printed, Lindbergh does it on the front page. That's how big it was. He made his way onto the 10-cent stamp. He was honored as the very first Time Magazine Man of the Year, and he remains the youngest man of the year to this day. Oh. No slouch, he quickly wrote an autobiography entitled We. No, he didn't. Not like We, but like W E. Oh. <laughs> we, I'm blind. <laughs> uh, it was the first of 15 books he eventually would end up writing. Um, we referred to the spiritual partnership that had developed between himself and his airplane during the dark hours of his flight. It was like 33 hours of him. How lame. I mean, well, apparently the publisher says that wasn't about that at all, but that's what he says. Anyway, I don't know. The book was translated into most major languages and sold more than six, how do I say numbers? 650,000 copies in the first year. Wow. Which in 1927 is a lot. Is a lot. He then went on a 35,000 kilometer tour across the United States in the spirit of St. Louis, which was the plane he made the transatlantic flight with. He visited all 48 states. At the time, there was only 48. And was seen by more than 30 million Americans. For reference, there was only 110 million Americans in total. And no televisions. So like a quarter of them saw him in person. Wow. He really was as big a celebrity as one can be. Hashtag we. We! In 1929, he marries Anne Moreau. Lindbergh taught Anne how to fly. And she accompanies him and assists him on much of his exploring and charting over the years. They waste no time, and just after a year later, Anne gives birth to Charles Lindbergh, or sorry, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. Oh. in 1930. How and do we feel about naming children after them like people? Not a fan. Okay. Because they're just inevitably going to be called Junior. Junior. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, not a huge just... fan. Um, I like like middle names, sure. But, like, I'm not going to name, like, neither of my kids has my name as a middle name, because, like, Evan's a shitty middle name. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway. Um, so, the, in the movie that is now playing in your mind, as I'm telling you this, this mm-hmm. should be where the title card comes up. And you realize that everything you just heard was the prologue. Sure. And now it begins. Yep. So, strap in. 
to your solo aircraft. Because mm-hmm. here we go. <laughs> At around 9 p.m. on March 1st, 1932, the Lindbergh's nurse, Betty Gao, went to check on Charles Jr. and found that the baby was not in his room. He's literally like one and a half. So, like, he didn't get up and walk away. He's meant to be in a crib. Sure. Well, I mean, if he was nine months like me, he could have. Because <laughs> Jeff could walk at nine. Yeah. Um, Oliver turns 10 tomorrow, so he didn't do it. No. Nope. No. Nope. Sorry. Uh, when she checked with Anne Lindbergh, uh, she found Anne was just making her way out of the bathtub. The two women called for Charles Lindbergh, who immediately went to the child's room and found a random note. <laughs> nope. <laughs> random note. <laughs> Pick up eggs on your way home. <laughs> a ransom note in an envelope on the windowsill, and the window was open. Charles got his gun and started to search the house and grounds with butler Ollie Waddley. One more time. Ollie Waddley. That's his name. <laughs> they found, I thought you said Ollie Waddley. Nope. Which um, is arguably better. They found traces of mud on the floor in the nursery, shoe impressions in the mud under the window of the baby's room, parts of an elaborate ladder, and the baby's blanket. The Hopewell police were notified, and the New Jersey State Police assumed charge of the investigation. Although lead investigator Norman Schwarzkopf would normally take control of the case, it was clear from the beginning that Lindbergh was calling the shots. Right from the get-go, he's like, no, 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 I'm in charge here. Upon further investigation of the ladder, it was found to be in two large sections joined together. So presumably like a hinge or something collapsible. Anyway, like a very large ladder that was clearly self-made. And yet the kidnappers left it behind. It was found with rungs broken, like during um, the ascent or descent. Probably something just snapped. Uh, There were no bloodstains in the nursery, nor were there any fingerprints in the room or on the ladder. Likewise, there were no clear shoe prints. It was clear to the forensic investigators that the kidnappers were wearing gloves and some type of cloth on their shoes. What uh, year was this? 30, 1930. Okay. So like forensic evidence was like at the beginning. Yeah, but they like they could do fingerprints. They sure. Could, yeah, they didn't have like obviously a computer database, but they could do fingerprints. Um, so like if they had a they suspect, can, yeah, yeah, um, there were no fingerprints found anywhere in the baby's room at all, including areas witnesses admitted to touching. So like the nurse or the father or the mother were like, yeah, I obviously like I touched the crib when I put him in and whatever. No fingerprints there. The only prints found were the babies. Want to hear the ransom note? Yes. Dear sir, have $50,000 ready, R-E-D-Y, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where were to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notify the police the child is in good care. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. That's the thing. At the bottom of the note is this weird symbol. Two interconnected old circles surround a red circle, um, kind of like a Venn diagram with like a red circle in the middle and then three holes punched through the paper, like physically, like jabbed through to the left and right of the diagram. So I have a picture for you. Please. Everyone else, look it up um, or use my incredible description that I just said. So it looks like that. A little weird. Very. Right? That's what they signed on the bottom of it. All of the, there's more than one ransom note, which we'll get to, but all of them had that on the bottom. Lovely. It's like an eye, kind of? Kind of like the eye of Sauron. Kind of. Um, so as you can tell, there were a lot of typos in that letter. Yeah, a couple. And lots of bad grammar. And no punctuation whatsoever. No. And also, all of the money had the dollar sign written at the end of the number. 
which is not an American thing to do. No, you do it at the beginning. Yeah, but Europeans do it at the end. Yeah. As the investigation continued that evening, footprints were found leading into the woods. Unfortunately, it didn't take long for the word to spread, and within hours, hundreds of people flooded the property with the intent to help, only to destroy any footprint evidence that was present. Idiots. Um, Well, the police hadn't quarantined it off either. Military colonels offered their aid. War heroes, lawyers, heads of the Office of Strategic Services, which was like the CIA CIA before CIA. Lindbergh and these men speculated that the kidnapping was perpetrated by organized crime figures, and they thought the letter was written by someone who spoke German as his native language. Specifically because he said, um, gut, uh, what was it? Um, The child is in gut care. G-U-T as in good. Yeah. Over the next couple of days, waiting for the kidnapper's next note, Lindbergh took it upon himself and all the people he had helping out to contact leaders of organized crime and see what they could find out from them. Hmm. William Moretti, Joe Adonis, Abner Zwillman, and Al Capone himself were all contacted for any information and all offered to help. How could they possibly have any information? Because they're just part of organized crime. So like they're thinking like maybe there was like a large... Sure. Like, because he was the most famous person in maybe the world, definitely America, that someone was like, well, we're going to make some money off him. Let's kidnap his kid. Sure. Right? I like, so they were hoping like they would know what was the underground sort of business. Um, and they all offered to help in, ter- in return for money or legal favors, as they were all in prison at this point. Uh, Capone offered his assistance in exchange for being released from prison. LOL. The authorities said no. Um, the morning after the kidnapping, the authorities notified President Herbert Hoover at that time, kidnapping was classified as a state crime, so there were no grounds for federal involvement. Mm. But the attorney general met with Hoover and announced that the New Jersey authorities would have the whole machinery of the Department of Justice behind them. Ooh. The Bureau of Investigation was authorized to investigate, and the Coast Guard, Customs Service, Immigration Service, and Washington, D.C. police were told their services might be required. So also, I mean, I- I'm going to let you keep going. I'm going to let you finish, but... I'm going to let you finish, but... Beyonce had the best album of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, a reward for the safe return of Little Indy. That's what they used to call him. Junior. Out, junior. That's why. Indiana. I'm sorry? Keep going. <laughs> a reward went out for 25000 and the Lindberghs added 50000 of their own. This total of $75,000 would be the equivalent of $1.172 million today. <laughs> Large reward. On March 6th, the second ransom note was received. So five days later, not so prompt on behalf of the kidnappers. They clearly said two to four business days in the first ransom note. <laughs> and it's been five. Uh, the ransom demand was increased to 70000 The note included the weird symbols. The goal of the investigation at this point was to get in touch with the kidnappers. Yep. John F. Condon, a well-known Bronx personality and a retired school teacher, okay. which don't sound like two things that should be in the no, same sentence. No, absolutely not. A Bronx personality and retired school teacher. Uh, he offered $1,000 in a newspaper ad if the kidnapper would turn the child over to a Catholic priest. Oh. Paul? Anyone? Um, Condon received a letter written by the kidnappers asking him to be the intermedi- intermediary with Lindbergh. Oh, Okay. Uh, a third ransom note was received by Lindbergh's attorney the next day, March 8th, stating that John Condon was to be the intermediary. It also specified the size of the box the money should come in and warned the family not to contact the police. Even though was the like, entire come on, police forces were yes. already contacted. Federally, they're involved. Like, uh-huh. he's walking down Times Square like, where is everybody? He's like, well, they're all at their house because they're trying yep. to figure out what happened. Um, they also noted... Um, Oh, sorry. The note also specified that contact would be made through newspaper columns. 
So like as a regular bias, like you and I, if we lived in 1927 or 30, whatever it was, could just read the paper and be like, what's happening with the Lindy baby? Has anybody commented yet? It's like Facebook. Yes. Connor received the $70,000 and placed an ad in the New York American reading, Money is Ready, Jeff C. Don't know. This was his code name. Don't know where the code name came from. How is it spelled? Uh, J-A-F-S-I-E. Like, John was just sitting on this for years, right? Like, waiting for his moment to use his code name. His friends were, like, dying to know for years. And, like, what's, the what's it going to be? Like, we've been waiting. What are you do, buddy? Like, what's it going to be? It's like, Jeffsy. Jeffsy. <laughs> we're like, oh, great. Very good. As you were. As you were. Uh, a meeting between Jeffsy, as we will call him forevermore, mm-hmm. and a representative of the group that claimed to be the kidnappers was scheduled for an evening at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Hmm. The man sounded foreign, but stayed in the shadows during the conversation, so his face couldn't be seen. The man said his name was John, and that he was a Scandinavian sailor, part of a gang of three men and two women. John was every inch a sailor. And he was. John was every inch a Scandinavian. The baby was being held on a boat, unharmed, but would only be returned for ransom. When Condon said he needed proof they had the baby, Scandinavian John... I say Scandinavian because both of their names are John. And we yes, need, please we, make it easier. Yeah, we need a descriptor. Um, so Scandinavian John says they will return the baby's sleeping suit, which wasn't in quotes. So I was like, when you say sleeping suit, is that like because he didn't speak English well or is that what you called them in 1927? <laughs> like a sleeping suit. Like, is it like a suit that has like pillows all through the hood? Ooh, so like you can sleep cozy. no matter where you are. It's like, I've got my sleeping suit on. Don't worry about it. I'll just lie down right here. Yeah, I guess it's the pajamas. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it must be the pajamas, but I don't know. Who's to say? We call it a onesie now. We call it a onesie. 80 years later, we call it a onesie. Mm. Um, Scandinavian John then asked Condon, would I burn if the package were dead? But then when questioned further by Condon, he was assured the baby was still alive. Ugh. I know. March 16th, Condon received the toddler's sleeping suit by mail and a seventh random note. Lindbergh confirmed this. Random or ransom? Damn it! (laughs) Jeff. Ransom. Did I I say random again? Yes, you did. They weren't random. They were very specific. (laughs) (laughs) Lindbergh confirmed the sleeping suit as the babies, so Condon placed a new ad in Home News. Money is ready. No cops. No secret service. I come alone like last time. Ooh. That was the message. Such a good movie. I guess when you're negotiating this type of thing, it takes a while because many more ransom notes went back and forth. And I, I think it's probably like one party doesn't have any assurance the baby is alive um, or that they'll give him back, right? It's like the Lindberghs were like, well, we don't know that you actually have the baby or if he's alive. And the other party doesn't have any assurance that they won't get killed. Yes, right? or that the police aren't there waiting. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very fine line to toe for both parties. Yep. So I get why it would take some time. So March 30th. So now we're like, it was the first he got kidnapped. Now it's the 30th of March. The ninth ransom note is sent, threatening to increase the demand to $100,000 and refusing Conan's plan of a code in newspaper columns. April 1st, the 10th ransom note is received by Dr. Condon, instructing him to have the money ready for the following night. The 11th note came the next morning by an unidentified taxi driver who said he received it from an unknown man. It had instructions to find the 12th ransom note under a stone in front of a greenhouse at 3225 East Tremont Avenue in the Bronx. What? Why couldn't it just be on the 11th note? Why couldn't the instructions be on the 11th note? That'd be too easy. I guess. The note uh, then gives instructions on where to meet Scandinavian John that night. I don't know if it's offensive that I keep saying that. 
I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so either. It just feels fun to say. Yeah. Also, this is quite the Easter egg hunt. Yeah, very much so. Except it's for a baby. Um, $50,000 is handed off in exchange for a receipt, which I couldn't help but laugh at. It's like, by the way, I you. need this for tax purposes. Yeah. The ransom Could was... this be pa- a charitable donation? Seriously, yeah. <laughs> Will I get my income tax back on this? Uh. The ransom was packaged in a wooden box that was custom made in a hope that it could later be identified. Ooh. The ransom money included a number of gold certificates. Since gold certificates were about to be withdrawn from circulation in 1930. It is hoped that they would draw attention by anyone spending it. They'd be like, hang on, no one has gold certificates. Um, the bills were not marked, but their serial numbers were recorded in a log. Good. Scandinavian John takes the money and gives Condon the 13th note, containing instructions on where to find the baby. On a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, in the care of two innocent women. Lindbergh <coughs> himself led the search, but nothing was found. They gained nothing from the ransom. Skinny named John got the money. Did not find a thing. No innocent women, no baby. On May 12th, two truck drivers are driving near the highway, near Mount Rose, New Jersey, about four miles from the Lindbergh home, when one needs to stop and have a pee. You can feel where this is going. Mm-hmm. He notices something poorly buried, and the body of little Lindy is found. The skull was badly fractured and the body decomposed. The body was identified as the baby due to its overlapping toes on the right foot, which was something that the baby had and is obviously definable, and a shirt that the nanny had made. Lindbergh insisted on cremation. In June, officials began to suspect that the crime had been perpetrated by someone the Lindberghs knew, and the prime suspect was Violet Sharp, a British household servant at the Morrow home, which is um, like uh, Lindbergh's... um, In-laws. Sure. um, Who had given contradictory information regarding her whereabouts on the night of the kidnapping. Okay. She was apparently nervous and suspicious when questioned. On June 10th, upon finding out she would be questioned for a fourth time, Violet committed uh, suicide by ingesting a silver polish that contained cyanide. Oh, my God. Her alibi was later confirmed, and police were actually criticized for heavy-handedness. She... Definitely did not do it, but she was so proud because it was like you know that it was referred to as the crime of the century. Yep. Like everyone in definitely the states and perhaps the world was following it. Yep. And she was about to be accused. The pressure of was on, and yep. she just killed herself. She's like, I can't do it anymore. Oh my god. Condon also became a suspect in the case. Oh. He remained unofficially involved, and his actions became increasingly flamboyant. He was determined to help the police find Cemetery John, aka Scandinavian John, as we like to call him. On one occasion, he was riding a city bus when he claimed he saw a suspect on the street. And while announcing his secret identity of, like, I'm Yapsy, ordered the bus to stop. The driver was like, all right, bye. And Condon darted from the bus, but the target eluded him. Um, Condon also appeared in a vaudeville act regarding the kidnapping that people were not fans of. No. A vaudeville. He got paid to be like, that- hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. <laughs> the baby is dead. Oh. I mean, I shouldn't have gone there, but I didn't know what else to say. Um, it was not planned. Uh, when there was no evidence of any sort and no leads, the police turned their attention to tracking the ransom payments, which... Maybe they should have done from the beginning. Yes. A pamphlet was prepared with the serial numbers and 250,000 copies were distributed to businesses, mainly in New York. A few of the ransom bills appeared in scattered locations, some as far as Chicago and Minneapolis, uh, but those spending the bills were never found. During the next 30 months, the police noticed some ransom bills were spent throughout New York City, many of which along the Lexington Avenue subway. 
I love when they get to like the hardcore police work. On September 18th, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom. A New York license plate penciled in the bill's margin allowed it to be traced to a nearby gas station. The station manager had written down the license plate on the bill because his customer was acting suspicious and he thought was possibly a counterfeiter. Like, come on, gas station worker. Like, the next Columbo. He's like, I don't like this guy. I'm going to write down that license plate Mm -hmm. because he just paid me with this and there we go. It's going to go to the bank. Like, you're in the the wrong profession, buddy. Yeah. Nailing it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, the license plate belonged to a sedan owned by Richard Hauptman of 12979 East 222nd Street in the Bronx. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that old chestnut. Uh, an immigrant arrived with a criminal record um, in Germany. Wait, what? An immigrant with a criminal record from Germany. There we go. Uh, when he was arrested, he was carrying a single $20 gold certificate, and over $14,000 of the ransom money was found in his garage. Upon interrogation and apparent beating, Hauptmann said the money and other items had been left with him by his friend and former business partner, Isidore Fish. Fish had died on March 29, 1934, after returning to Germany. He said he learned only after the death that the shoebox that was left to him contained a considerable amount of money. He just like was like, whatever, man, you left me a shoebox. Sure. He kept it because he claimed that it was owed to him from a business deal he and Fish had made. But he denied any knowledge of the crime or that the money was from the ransom. Yep. In searching Hauptmann's home, they found a notebook that contained a sketch of the construction of a ladder very similar to that used at the Lindbergh home. Okay. They also found John Condon's telephone number and address written on a closet wall. Okay. Creative. Yep. A section of wood was discovered in the attic that was examined by an expert, uh, was found to be an exact match to the wood used in the construction of the ladder found at the crime scene. Great. So they used the roof. <laughs> yes. Men of very little resources. <laughs> no, they were in the attic. Not necessarily the roof. I mean, the attic is like... I mean, they could use the floor of the attic. I, I guess know. so. The moral of what I was trying to say is that they had little to no resources. Yeah, agreed. I mean, hey, it's very expensive right now to get a bit of wood. Honestly, nowadays, yeah. lumber is yeah. high demand. Uh, Hauptman was indicted on September 24th, 1934 for extorting the $50,000 ransom Two weeks later, he was indicted for the murder of Charles Jr. The charge was to be for capital murder and quickly dubbed the trial of the century. Every hotel room in the entire town was booked in New Jersey. Okay. You can ask so that they're not, they're, they didn't buy his story about his friend. They just thought it was him. Well, they could have bought it. They're like, all of this shit is in your apartment and mm-hmm. you can't explain it. So giddy up. That's what I'm saying. They, yeah. They're like, you're lying. This is actually you. Right. Um, so in the exchange for the rights to publish Hauptman's story in their newspaper, the New York Daily Mirror paid for Hauptman's lawyer. In the damning evidence was, of course, the ransom money and testimony alleging that Hauptman's handwriting and spelling were similar to the ransom notes. Eight handwriting experts pointed out the similarities. Only one of the experts the defense had co- had uh, sorry, only one of the experts the defense had were called to testify against the evidence. The others declined or demanded to be paid in order to testify. Because imagine testifying against the guy who probably murdered the baby of the most famous person in states. Yeah, it's tricky. While on trial, Halpin was identified as the man to whom the ransom money was delivered. That's right, Halpin is Scandinavian John. Mm. Or they think he is, anyway. In regards to the phone number and address in the closet, Houtman said, I must have read it in a paper about the story. 
I was a little bit interested and kept a little bit of a record of it. And maybe I was just on the closet. English is not good. And was reading the paper and put it down the address. I can't give you any explanation about the telephone number. Mm. Other witnesses testified that Hauptmann had spent the ransom money in their stores and that he was seen in the area of the Lindbergh's estate on the day of the kidnapping. So it was him. Well, it's, I mean, it's a lot of witness testimony, which is like, who's to say? But Hearsay. There's a lot of there's a lot of evidence against him. He was also absent from work the day of the ransom payment and had his, uh, and quit his job two days later. He never sought another job afterwards, yet continued to live comfortably. I mean, let's be honest. He's reading the paper in the closet. Would we call that comfortable living? No. No, I was just reading the paper in the closet and I wrote down his phone number. No. Um, the defense called for rebuttal witnesses who testified that Hauptmann's business partner, Fish, could not have been at the scene of the crime as well. He had no money for medical treatments when he died of tuberculosis the previous year. His landlady testified that he could barely afford the three fifty a week, $3.50, Great. in weekly rent for his room. So how could he have had $40,000 in a shoebox? Regardless, Hauptmann was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. Oh. I mean... Before now, I was thinking the evidence against the evidence against it wasn't so bad. Like he literally had all of the things he should not have had. Yes, right, that's correct. Um, on the evening of October sixteenth, the governor of New Jersey, Harold Hoffman, secretly visited Hauptmann in his cell, and brought along with him a stenographer who was fluent in German. After this meeting, Governor Hoffman urged members of the Court of Appeals to visit Hauptmann. When asked about it, Governor Hoffman said he held no position on the guilt or innocence of Hauptmann, but cited evidence of why the crime was not a one-person job and urged authorities to continue a thorough and impactful investigation. I think that shouldn't be impactful. I think it should be um, impartial. I think that's what they're going for. Yes. Um, in order to bring all parties to justice. He was like, no way was it just this guy. Even if it's this guy, it's not just him alone. Sure. When Hauptmann's first appeal was denied, Governor Hoffman actually reprieved him because, like, as governor, he had that right. Is that a quote from Les Mis? Will be reprieved. It's a fair suicide? Pretty sure. Maybe. Um, and he granted remember. him a second appeal trial. But to no avail. Guilty again. Mm. On April 3rd, 1936, the day of his scheduled execution, Hauptmann turned down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for a confession. Which I presume was like money to go to the family. Like, what is he gonna like? What do you mean, large offer? He's I, the he's opportunity about to, to speak openly and publicly. That's the offer. You can speak publicly. Yeah, but he's gonna not a lot of people get that opportunity to have Spells. a voice. Um, he also refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession. He's like, no, bye. Once Hauptmann had been put to death, some reporters and investigators started coming forward with concerns about how the investigation had been handled and the fairness of the trial. Now they're saying it after he's dead. Mm -hmm. well, Excellent. Maybe, maybe they were saying it before as well, but now that people are listening to them. There were accusations of witness tampering and planted evidence. Mm. I mean, there was a lot of evidence in his apartment. Yes. Like literally every single thing that they needed. In the 1980s, the mid-1980s. Thank you. Hauptmann's wife, Anna, sued the state of New Jersey twice for the unjust execution of her husband. This is like, what, 60 years later, 50 years later. But due to prosecu pros prosecutorial immunity, and because the statute of limitations had run out, um, nothing happened. Nothing came of it. Anna Great. continued to fight to clear Hauptmann's name until the day she died at the age of 95 in 1994, 60 years after the conviction. My God. She's like, no, bye. He did not do it. Alone or the, at all. 
at all. The Lindbergh Act of 1932 makes it a federal crime to transport a kidnapped victim across state lines. It allows federal agents to pursue kidnappers across state borders, whereas local law enforcement is bound by jurisdiction. So at that time, like it took a while for the feds, even though he's the most famous person in the city or country, the feds couldn't get involved right away because that wasn't the law. A second it goes across state lines, FBI is involved. Sure. Which brings us now to the tricky bits. Yeah. Or as Harrison likes to say, the sticky bits. The sticky bits. The little bits on the bottom of his foot, like the skin that he picks off. What are you doing, Harrison? Just picking my sticky bits. Gross. (laughs) So now let's start throwing wrenches and see where we land, okay? Yes, please. We know that the baby was abducted through the window. We know that when the baby was, or when the body was found a couple months later, the head injuries and level of decomposition led investigations, uh, investigators, to believe that the baby had died on the night of the abduction. Okay. It's very commonly believed that while climbing down the ladder, Hauptman, or whoever it was, dropped the baby, Ugh. resulting in immediate death. They took off into the woods, and they had to come up with some sort of plan where they had to convince the family the baby was alive in order to still get a ransom. Ugh. This is why they think the ransom notes kept changing and would show up randomly. That time I did mean randomly, just for the record. Well done. Um, sometimes within weeks in between. The kidnappers were just freaking out, trying to figure out what to do. In all these scenarios, it's uh, hardly anyone believes that Hopman acted alone. So why was the case buttoned up so quickly and efficiently? Why was there not a broader search for other culprits? Well, let me tell you. Ooh. The main theory is that Charles Lindbergh himself was involved in the whole plot. I figured it was Did going this, this way. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. This is a very slippery slope. It Does it get slippery quickly? Yeah. I will tell you that I got some information from a few sources. One, an article in the University of New Jersey website. Another, less reputable, called heathermonroemedium.com. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless. Um, so here's the apparent information I didn't tell you the first time. Great. On the night of March 1st, 1932, or I think it's 1930. It doesn't matter. Baby Charles was recovering from a cold. His nurse, Betty Gao, rubbed medication on his chest before putting him to bed. Like a nice Vicks Vapor rubber. Vicks Vapor. Charles phoned around this time saying he was coming home, which was odd. He was supposed to speak at New York University. And Charles hardly ever missed an appearance. This was a man whose ego had exploded when the world lost their minds over him. Yep. So that was odd. But anyway, he's coming home. He instructs Anne to not allow anyone in the baby's room between 8 and 10 p.m. He said that he believed Charles was being spoiled, and sick or not, he didn't want his son spoiled. If the nurse constantly was doting on him, he couldn't learn to fight anything off himself. Okay. Charles arrives home at 8.25. At 10 p.m., Betty notices the open window in the nursery, goes to close it, and finds the crib empty. Betty's initial reaction is that Charles was pulling a prank. A few weeks prior, he had apparently hid the baby in a closet to prank his wife. Lindbergh was known to be a prankster, and some people actually think that the whole disappearance was a prank, that Lindbergh himself climbed the ladder, was going to take the baby out of the room, and accidentally dropped him on the way down the ladder, and then just covered it up. I think that's bullshit. That just seems too stupid. But was Lindbergh involved in some capacity? Let's go on. So at this point, it's clear, and fact, Lindbergh had an engagement that night at the university, but skipped it, which I would imagine would be a big deal. Like, literally the most famous person in the country was meant to speak at a university, and many people were going to attend, and he canceled the night of. Was there justification as to why? No. He just canceled. What a jerk. Seriously. 
Whether or not he said no one go in the room between 8 and 10, who's to say? That might be Heather the Medium coming up with some juicier bits to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but why would Lindbergh be involved in the kidnapping and possible death of his firstborn son regardless? Like, just why would he do that? Lloyd Gardner of Rutgers was featured in a PBS special entitled Who Killed Lindbergh's Baby? and was quoted as saying, I resisted the theory that Lindbergh was involved. The evidence against Hauptmann is quite compelling, but the evidence of his being the sole kidnapper is less compelling. Once you conclude it was conducted by a group or more than one person, the question becomes why. And he has theories. There's pretty good evidence that little Charles was not the perfect baby. His health and physical condition at the time of his abduction were downplayed, even to law enforcement. But let's not forget, the nurse identified the body because of the shirt she had made and the toes that were overlapping. It appears that baby Lindbergh was affected with a rickets-like condition that affected the development of strong bones. He required huge doses of vitamin D daily through, like, injection, um, and exposure to a sun lamp kept cribside. He also had hammer toes on his left foot, a too large cranium, and unfused skull bones. Let's also not forget that Lindbergh basically took charge of the investigation from the get-go. He isolated household staff who may have had knowledge of his son's medical condition and didn't allow them to be questioned. He didn't want people knowing anything was wrong with the baby. And when the body was found, Lindbergh ordered a very prompt cremation without a, um, without a formal autopsy. The Lindbergh family was in the public eye more than any other family on earth during the early 30s. They couldn't go anywhere without reporters and photographers following them, so it was crucially important that appearances were upheld. A child with a significant health concern was not great for that appearance. And then we get the nail in the proverbial coffin. Mm. Once the trial had come to an end, the Lindberghs left America and moved to England. Just like, let's get away. During the 30s, Lindbergh observed the advancements in German aviation and warned the U.S. of the growing superiority on that front. He also became enamored with the revitalization movement he was witnessing in Germany. Lindbergh had also been fascinated with social Darwinism and eugenics. So as the Nazi party rose in power... It is thought that Lindbergh sympathized with their movement. It's not thought. It's confirmed that he was he was decorated by Hitler's government himself. Great. Upon returning to the States, he pushed for neutrality with Germany and was spearhead of the movement for the U.S. not to join the war. He was certain the Germans would win. He gave a speech in 1941 in which he identified the groups that he believed were compromising, um, or sorry, he believed the groups that were... Um, the driving force to bring the U.S. into war against Germany, the British, the Jewish, and the Roosevelt administration. President Roosevelt had his press secretary release a statement citing the striking similarity between what Lindbergh had said in his speech and what the speeches that had come out of Berlin in that exact same week were. Mm, Yeah. Some people say that Lindbergh was completing his own experiments in genetics, trying to reproduce what he thought were his own paralleled genes. Oh, there's like a little... A little bit of a... Overlap. Uh, When Baby Baby Lindbergh was kidnapped, his wife was already pregnant with their next child. From 1957 onward, Lindbergh had secret affairs with three women in Germany, which led to seven children besides the six he had with his wife. Wow. Two of the women who fathered his children in Germany were sisters, putting even more weight on his eugenics theory. Like, he found a family. He was like, yeah, these would be great. Yeah. The prevailing conspiracy theory, which, given all this information, doesn't seem particularly far-fetched, is that Lindbergh had created a plot to have his baby kidnapped. He, in fact, had hired the men to do the job and made sure he was home so that the plot would be successful. What seems perhaps the most likely for some is that all of these theories are true simultaneously. And this is what feels the most 
true to me. Lindbergh planned to have the baby kidnapped and taken to Germany to be taken uh, care of away from the public eye. And without the name Lindbergh attached to it, like, let's not tell anybody this is my baby. Yep. We'll just let everybody else pretend that the baby died. Yep. But it went wrong. There was an accident going down the ladder and the baby died. Hauptmann and associates were hired to do the job. And when things went wrong, they panicked. And so did Lindbergh. Hauptmann was the scapegoat. And that's why every possible bit of evidence was found in his apartment. Like, yep. Let's put it all there and make sure we pin it on this one guy. How nice. Whether these theories are true, who's to say? But what is for sure is that Lindbergh was certainly not the hero that the country wanted. He was quoted as saying, Our civilization depends on a Western wall of race and arms, which can hold back the infiltration of inferior blood. Even after the Holocaust, Lindbergh refused to admit he was wrong in his assessment of the Nazis. Historian William O'Neill offered the opinion that, in promoting appeasement and military unpreparedness, Lindbergh damaged his country to a greater degree than any other private citizen in modern times. Ten years before he died, um, Lindbergh wrote to each... Uh, no, sorry, not ten years. Ten days before he died. Great. Lindbergh wrote to each of his European mistresses, imploring them to maintain the utmost secrecy about his illicit activities with them, even after his death. Like, when I'm dead, don't say a word. His illegitimate children illegitimate children, did not know the true identity of their father. He had gone by an alias, Carew Kent, and only visited them once or twice a year. However, after reading a magazine article about Lindbergh in the mid-1980s, one of his German-born daughters discovered the truth. She's like, hang on, that's my dad. That's Carew Kent. After both her mother and Anne Lindbergh, the American wife, had died... She waited, like, out of respect for them to die. Yep. She made her findings public. She put all of the—she found 100 love letters from Lindbergh to her mother. In 2003, DNA tests confirmed that she was the daughter and that all of the siblings were Lindbergh's children. Reeve Lindbergh, the youngest child he had with Anne, wrote in her personal journal, This story reflects absolutely Byzantine layers of deception on the part of our shared father. The children did not even know who he was. He used a synonym with them to protect them, perhaps, to protect himself, absolutely. Lindbergh spent his last years on the Hawaiian island of Maui, where he died of lymphoma at the age of 72. Wow. Yep. That is some serious hanky-panky. Isn't it? I think, I think you're right. I think it's a little bit of everything all entwined. Yeah. Like he, I think he's he, far too in, into genetics to have a baby that is as his, his that isn't perfect. Uh-huh. But also in the same breath, like, it is very aligned with the Nazi regime. To, exactly. To, to get rid of yep. ones that aren't mm -hmm. up to Social par. Darwinism. Yeah. Right? Oof. Yeah. It's real bleak. That sucks. Yeah, it really sucks. But, like, I don't see how he wasn't involved. I really don't. No. No. Once, once you reveal more, once you peel back some of the peel, <laughs> you can see the full banana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just real bleak. But um, the so I, I, what, what surpasses me is even on the death trial, like mm -hmm. he didn't even come out and say like, "All Halpin. right, yeah, yeah." I think it was like, "If you do, you're toast anyway." So like, why didn't he just? Unless if he told the truth and then got life imprisonment, he get killed more brutally in prison. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. I mean, maybe he wasn't. Maybe honor? he wasn't involved at all. Who's to say? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But maybe yeah. it was him and the guy, Franz or whatever you say his name was, who died of tuberculosis. Oh yeah, um, Isidore uh, 
Fish. Fish. Um, um, maybe it was actually the two of them. Yep. And they just scapegoated this other guy. Yep. Just randomly, right? Yep. Woo. Yeah. Either way, the ladder, like the fact that the ladder had a broken piece is like sketchy. Because, like, obviously that happened on the way up or the way down. And uh, trying to carry a baby down a ladder. Sure. I can't imagine is, you know, no one would ever do that. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's problematic. It's, it's very problematic. It's very problematic. It's a lot of hanky-panky. I don't yeah. enjoy it. No, but it's, a really interesting, it's interesting I knew nothing about it. Zero. Yeah. Um, and because, uh, like, you know, he was a hero. And, like, now, like, one of the articles I read was, like, his name was not used in that context for a very long time after. Oh, man. Um, but, yeah, we talk about him in, in the spirit show. Yeah. Um, whatever it's called. I, can't, uh, I don't remember. Anyway, it's all about aviation and mostly Alcock and Brown because yeah. they left from St. John's. Yeah. We do touch on him because he did the solo flight and pass through the narrows. We show a little clip of the video and then Peter Halley, we like pan to like what looks like it's still part of the video, but it's just like Peter dressed up as like a little six year old girl <laughs> with pigtails on. It's priceless. That's great. Yeah, it's really good. But um yeah, like we just what a piece of shit. Like even if he wasn't involved, he's still a piece of shit. Yes. Just like as a narcissist Nazi supporter. Yeah. Just in that. Just in and that a deceitful alone. Yeah, like Father. what are you doing? Just having babies with everybody, trying to make the perfect baby or something. Ugh. And like, and the fact that it was his firstborn, like little Lindy was his firstborn and was named after him, like had his exact three names. I was like, I think he just like couldn't deal with that aspect. Like, no, he's the one who's supposed to be like the the new, you know, heir to the Lindbergh throne, sort of thing, and he has something wrong with him. Yeah, it's... that is shocking. That is really, really unfortunate. Actually. I mean, it's maybe not true, but it seems like it kind of is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Ugh, okay. Anyway, moving forward, content warning. Yeah. Fact. <laughs> yeah. That's why we had the warning. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you know, I was like, should I have a content warning? And then I chatted to Tiff, and she's like, I told her like literally thirty seconds. She's like, uh, yes, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, kind of polarizing topics. Yep. Absolutely. Although the genetics were involved in both. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, great episode. We have a great year ahead of us. Lots of cool stuff coming. I know. It's weird to like be mid-season two, but the new year is upon us. Yeah. A little mm. bit. Um, as always, make sure to follow, like, and share on Facebook and Instagram. And if you could take a second and quickly rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. You'd be the first one to do so in a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> Fact. Uh, factual. If you could do that, we would appreciate it. Appreciate it. If you have something you'd like us to advertise for you, feel free to send that in to us. We are more than happy to do it. We strive. It's our part of our mandate to support local small business, local companies, and um, let us help you. Yeah. Let us let us shout it from the hills. So yep. if you have something you'd like us to uh, chat about, email us at infodosplainit at gmail.com. And if you have a topic you'd like us to explain, also email us at infodosplainit at gmail.com. We hope you learned something this week. And if you didn't, there's always next week.
all the time. Um, God, you just that's where your natural resonance is. That's so high for me. I had to work to get up there. Mm. <laughs> well, the criticism, I'm just saying. It's the difference in you and me. That's why you're saying the high harmony on the theme song.